70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Xin chào mọi người, mình là Duyên, đang du học tại Hàn Quốc. Mình biết đến KBS World Radio trong khi Hi, my name is Duyên and I'm a Vietnamese student studying in Korea. I learned about KBS World Radio when I was getting ready to come to Korea. I started listening to the station to understand more about the Korean language as well as the culture, society, and politics. It is a bit difficult, but it helps me a lot with my studies because the programs are very high quality, unmatched by those of any other stations. I'm particularly interested in news, cultural events, and sports. I love how there are always various cultural events taking place in Korea. Congratulations on the 70th anniversary. I'll look forward to more programs on Korea's cultural events. Thank you. Seventy years with KBS World Radio. Seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Tuesday, the 26th of December, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Hwang Jang-woo. President Yoon highlighted the nation's positive economic performance this year in his final cabinet meeting of the year, and he pledged to continue with sound fiscal policy in 2024. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Korea 24 has chosen the children in Gaza as our people of the year. And so in a special extended in-depth today, we'll speak to frontline humanitarian workers to learn more about the tragic situation in Gaza amid the Israel-Hamas war. We have all that and more on today's Career 24. President Yoon Sung-yeol held his final cabinet meeting of the year on Tuesday. Looking ahead to 2024, he vowed to continue a sound fiscal policy and tackle the country's low birth rate. He also predicted that improved exports will lead to economic recovery and growth next year, emphasizing intensive support for the service industry to ensure that the trend leads to a recovery in domestic demand. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us a deputy editor-in-chief of KBS World's English news service, Kim In-young, in hello. Hello, chang Yes, yeah, so, so the year is now drawing to a close and the final cabinet meeting of 2023 was held today. What were President Yoon's biggest messages? President Yoon touted South Korea's economic performance this year and announced that he will continue his sound fiscal policy next year. This means that the government will minimize increases to government debt. He forecasted improved exports will lead to economic recovery and growth next year and that the government will support the service industry in particular to revive domestic demand. 
The president also emphasized the implementation of the so-called three major reform tasks of improving education, labor and pension while solving the low birth rate problem. The government recently projected that if the current low birth rate trend continues, South Korea's population could fall from about 52 million this year to 36 million in 50 years' time. So what did the president have to say about this uh, low birth rate trend? President Yoon called for more serious consideration of the nation's low birth rates and a new level of solutions. He urged all government ministries to address the matter with renewed determination. He said that many experts have suggested that excessive competition in the country, such as in the education system, is a direct cause of the low birth rate, and if it is, the government should focus on fixing it. The big political turning point next year will, of course, be the general elections coming up in April. And in preparation for that, the ruling People Power Party officially picked its new interim leader on Tuesday, the former Justice Minister Han Dong-un. Can you tell us more? The PPP's National Committee held an automated response system vote in approving Han. Of the 650 members of the committee out of a total 824 who took part in the vote, 627 voted in favor and 23 opposed. He's expected to assume the leadership role on Friday after the after the maximum 15-member emergency committee is composed. Han gave an acceptance speech as well. Can you walk us through some of the highlights? Sure. The biggest surprise was that he said he will sit out the general elections in April. He said he will guide the PPP to victory, but that he won't run in a district or as a proportional representative. Han also slammed the Democratic Party's push for a special counsel probe into First Lady Kim Goni's alleged stock manipulation, calling it an evil bill made just for the general elections. He said he will work with his party to respond to the bill. On that special counsel bill on the First Lady, the DP said it plans to push ahead with it, as well as the one on the so-called 5 billion one club linked to the Taejangdong development scandal during Thursday's plenary session. So what is the latest word from the DP on the dual bills? At a party meeting on Tuesday, DP floor leader Hong Ik-pyo reiterated his party to resolve, party's resolve to table the bills on Thursday, saying they cannot be deferred. He said the DP will not negotiate on a package of bills with the ruling side, stressing that the public has sternly requested the passage of each and every one of them. Meanwhile, the PPP's floor leader Yoon Jae-ok, Prime Minister Han Dok-su and Presidential Chief of Staff Kim Dae-gi reportedly met on Monday and decided to reject the special counsel probe into the First Lady. This means even if the DP-led National Assembly passes the bill to probe the allegations, the president will reject the bill. Let's turn now to the possible division within the DP amid former DP leader Lee nak announcement earlier this month of his intent to create his own party. He had a breakfast meeting with former Prime Minister Cheung Se-gyun on Tuesday before Cheung is set to meet with the current DP leader Lee Jae-myung on Thursday. Can you tell us more? According to a statement issued by Eastside, he and Cheung who are both prime minister during the Moon Jae-in administration, shared honest opinions on issues inside and outside of the country, as well as concerns of the current administration's handling of state affairs and the turmoil within the DP. He said that the two agreed to pursue a meeting of the three former DP prime ministers of the Moon administration, including Kim Bu-gyeom. Lee Jae-ming already met with Kim last week as DP elders worked to discuss party integration, but a meeting between the current and former DP leaders remains uncertain. Sticking with politics, the state election watchdog announced on Tuesday that improvements to voting and counting procedures are being considered ahead of next year's general elections. Can you explain? 
The National Election Commission said it is reviewing the addition of a manual counting procedure in order to boost the reliability of the vote counting process. Ballots are currently sorted by a machine and checked by a person at a screening counter. The change would add manual counting before sorting with a voting machine. But the election watchdog denied media reports that the machine mistakenly processed invalid votes as valid during the previous general elections. The commission stressed that the accuracy of the machine has been proven on numerous occasions, but it is weighing the addition of manual counting in light of controversy over the accuracy of the system. Finally, the government has said there is no change to the import ban on Japanese seafood products from around the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant after Tokyo announced plans to increase exports of scallops to the country. Can you expand this for us? First Vice Minister for Government Policy and Coordination Park Guion said on Tuesday that the announcement came unilaterally from Tokyo and Seoul's ban on seafood imports from eight prefectures near the nuclear power plant will remain in place. The Vice Minister said radiation testing is conducted each time seafood imports, including scallops, are brought in and that nuclide certificates are requested upon detection of even trace radiation. Earlier, Japan's Kyoto News reported that Tokyo introduced plans to redirect scallop exports to South Korea the European Union and other regions in light of a slump in shipments amid Beijing's all-out ban on Japanese seafood imports since August, when Tokyo began discharging wastewater from the plant. The Japanese government is reportedly seeking to export 4.1 billion yen, around 29 million U.S. dollars worth of scallops to South Korea in 2025, amounting to 6.3 percent of total export value. That's where we'll wrap it up for our news briefing today. In Young, thank you for those updates. Thanks for having me. The year 2023 has seen its share of significant events around the world, but perhaps the one that has defined this year is the war between Israel and Hamas. The ongoing conflict has turned into a humanitarian tragedy in Gaza, resulting in a staggering number of casualties and no immediate resolution in sight. Particularly distressing is the disproportionate impact on children, given that half of Gaza's population is under 18 years of age. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has gone as far as to warn that Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. As the year comes to an end, Career 24 has chosen the children in Gaza as the people of the year. And for today's In-Depth, we will first learn about the challenges that the children are facing with the help of Jason Lee. Mr Lee is with Save the Children, an international organisation working to protect and improve the lives of children across the globe. He is currently the country director for the Palestinian territories and he was in Gaza witnessing the devastation firsthand. Due to technical and logistical constraints, direct live communication with Jason Lee was not possible. However, he was able to provide responses to our questions via recorded voice messages. The following has been edited with my questions recorded separately. After that, we will speak to a doctor with Doctors Without Borders, an international medical humanitarian organisation that delivers emergency aid to people to hear more about the humanitarian efforts in Gaza. But first, here's Jason Lee. 
Mr. Lee, thank you for your time today. Could you give us details about when you visited Gaza and what you witnessed there, and how dire is the situation? Um, I was in Gaza at the end of November and was there for two and a half weeks, almost three weeks. Uh, during that time, I visited the southern part of Gaza in Rafah, but also Khan Yunus. And during the pause and fighting, was able to visit Khan Yunus to see our teams who are sheltering in the shelters in Khan Yunus, but also in Rafah. And what I witnessed was a rapid deterioration in the situation, especially at the end of the pause in fighting, when the fighting started again. Rafa, I saw um, fill up with more displaced people. Uh, the streets in Rafa started getting filled, so wherever there was any space in the side of roads, next to buildings, in car parks, next to mosques, next to hospitals, um, civilians that were fleeing Khan Yunus once again um, were being made displaced and were putting up tents so those that had tents put up tents those that didn't would put up wooden structures and find whatever bits of plastic um, cloth that they would have to create shelters and I saw this rapidly deteriorate uh, when the pause ended and the fighting resumed again I visited um, the, tr the shelters where I saw overcrowding, the one in Khan Yunus is a facility for 1,000 students but had over 35,000 people living in it. Now these people, the civilians, did not have access to enough food or water. There was one toilet for 600 people. Um, I also saw the health facilities and it is absolutely dire none of the hospitals have enough supplies they don't have fuel to run electricity they don't have enough medicines and you see patients they're overcrowding um, the, the, the hospitals cannot cope patients are now sleeping on the floor there's blood everywhere um, physicians nurses and doctors are forced are being forced to do treatments in the corridors um, and we will see a public health emergency the overcrowding that's happening rafa had a population of 280,000 people before the escalation. It is now meant to house over 1 million people. Rafa does not have the infrastructure or the space available. The shelters are all full. Every shelter is an average four to six times of their maximum capacity. Um, again, there is no water and sanitation facilities, which means that children, especially will be at risk. There will be a public health emergency. We already see increases in the rates of diarrheal disease. Um, with children now, not especially those that are out in the open or those that are living in tents, with the cold weather and the rains that are coming, there is a risk of pneumonia, um, especially amongst children. And pneumonia is one of the um, global killers for children, the, the worst killers for children globally. We also see the risk of communicable diseases um, coupled with malnutrition rates, um, with the lack of food and lack of variety of food. Children are more at risk for malnutrition. So again, all of this we anticipate seeing. What do the people, especially the children, need the most there right now? The most important thing that people need right now is the ceasefire. And the reason is multiple. One, 
we can see that this conflict has been disproportionately impacting the most vulnerable in society. Seven out of ten of the civilians killed or injured has been a woman or a child. We also see the horrific numbers of children that are killed or those that are injured, especially from um, the, the conflict or the use of explosive weapons. Children are more susceptible, their bodies are smaller, they're softer, their bones break easier. They have less blood, which means that they bleed out faster and sooner. And again, the reason why is there must be the centrality of protection for civilians. This is what the population needs the most. Humanitarian workers, we are also unable to deliver unless there is a ceasefire. There has been over 100 humanitarians that have been killed by doing their jobs. We also get killed, we also get injured, when there is airstrikes, when there's shelling, when there's fighting. Now the ceasefire is the first step, but it is not all. There needs to be full restoration of humanitarian access. That means the ability for humanitarians to travel throughout all of the Gaza Strip to the north in order to, develop, to deliver assistance. Right now, we're not able to travel north of Wadi Gaza. We're not able to develop to deliver assistance in Kanyunas. Those there are hundreds of thousands of civilians still trapped in the north and in the middle area that require assistance. Many of these children are still there. Um, include people living with disabilities, the elderly, the sick, that cannot move. And just because they remain in the north does not mean that they forfeit the right for protection or the right to receive assistance. There also needs to be a lot more goods and supplies coming into Gaza. The trucks that are going in now is not sufficient to keep the 2.3 million people alive. And half of the 2.3 million people in Gaza are children. Right now, we are prioritizing commodities which are life-saving. We're not, where we are at this moment is not about preventing suffering, but it is about life-saving. This is why we need food, water, medicines, shelters, uh, NFI such as blankets and mattresses and tents because again you have 1.9 million people that's 85% of the population are now homeless they are now displaced they need places to stay and they need to be kept warm and dry especially now with winter and the rains We need more humanitarians to also enter Gaza. At the moment, the conditions in Gaza do not allow for the delivery of humanitarian aid. Humanitarians, all of us have been impacted. All of our operations are impacted. Our teams, all of my teams are displaced. They are sheltering in the schools. They're staying with families. They are also wondering where their next meal will come from. Will they be safe? Will they be safe? So it's critical that we have the ceasefire, that we have goods coming in, but that we have people coming in as well. I need a lot more people to ensure that we can find the vulnerable families. We can identify the children that need protection, the children that need help, 
and to deliver those as that assistance to them. There are thousands of children that have been unaccompanied and separated from their families and parents. There are still thousands of children that are missing, presumed dead under the rubble. We are now in a situation where parents are writing their names on the legs and the arms of their children in case they are killed to make it easy to identify. Um, I think, again, besides the things that keep children alive right now is protection. I cannot underscore the longer-term mental health consequences for children that are surrounded by the cycle of violence. All of our research showed that increased levels of anxiety, depression, feelings of isolation and a loss of hope for children. And it is critical that we, one, stop the violence, which means the ceasefire, to get children to feel safe again, protect again, make sure that they have access to food, water, shelter, and critical MHPSS support so that they can recover and rebuild their lives. Can you share any stories or experiences that highlight the resilience or hardships of the children and families you interacted with? A story that really stuck with me when I was there was that I visited Khan Yunus Training Center and there was a family desperate to find milk, milk for a young baby. I don't know how old the baby was, but less than one years old. I would estimate probably between six to 12 months. Now this mother, the baby's mother, unfortunately had been killed, buried under the rubble. And they were desperately trying to find some milk, formula to feed the baby. Unfortunately, this story is one that is becoming the norm in Gaza. And again, it shows the desperation of civilians, of people, of children that have been impacted disproportionately by this conflict. Sometimes there's a, a memory that highlights the resilience as well. And again, although that horrific story was in Khan Yunus training center where I saw the desperation of someone, there was also a positive where whenever I went to visit, all of these children were following me, asking me, how are you, where are you from, what my name was, and trying to give me high fives, give me high fives with their hands. And despite all these that the children have been going through, the fact that they were homeless and they were sheltering in a school, um, what remained was their smiles, their inquisitiveness, their wanting to know more about me, clearly a foreigner. Um, and I think this is worth highlighting that this is what we're there to protect, is the ability for children just to be children to remain inquisitive, to want to to remain joyful and have that smile on their face. And this is why it's critical that we have the ceasefire, we have all parties to the conflict meeting their obligations under international law to protect civilians, especially children. What kind of assistance has Save the Children been providing to help children in Gaza? Save the children, although our impact our operations have been impacted, we are still working. We, are been, we have been successful in bringing in trucks from Egypt through our Egypt country office. Um, these are critical life-saving water, um, food, hygiene kits, winterization materials. We've also been able to distribute cash. Uh, we've been distribute some food in the north. We've done some MHPSS activities with children in shelters with our, through our partners. 
again whatever we can we have been doing but it is not enough we are trying to bring in a lot more trucks but again the bureaucratic impediments of of restricting the number of trucks coming in the long processes means that we are not able to bring in enough supplies as an advocacy effort karam shalom must be opened rafa cannot be the only entry point for goods and and people coming into gaza have there been any problems that save the children has faced along the way um the problems well the problems are that all of my teams are impacted we are not able to bring in as much supplies as we need to we are not able to bring in the quantities and the types of goods that we need to because of the bureaucratic impediments and the logistical challenges in trying to get goods through rafa i don't have enough team members because all of my gaza teams are sheltering i need to bring in a lot more people to help bolster and our operations and also our offices in gaza city i don't know if it's still standing um we need to be able to access all of gaza we need to be able to have people coming in i need fuel for our vehicles in order to operate again most of all i need the ceasefire children in gaza need the ceasefire Ch- um save the children um we have been operating in the occupied territory since 1953 we have long established partners um both in gaza and the west bank we work through a whole variety of programs from protection education um livelihoods resilience climate um and water and sanitation right now our programs in gaza are life saving it is about protecting children it is supporting how do we identify unaccompanied and separated children to make sure they're protected how do we make sure that children have the food water access to medical care that they need right now how do we support the water and sanitation in the shelters um these are the things that we are doing right now working through the clusters working with our partners trying to do the best that we can to keep civilians alive and what final words would you like to say to our listeners i think it's really important to remember that save the children we believe in equal rights for all children this is every child around the world irrespective of who they are where they are on what circumstances they are in all rights for all children and what we are asking for and what we're demanding is that all parties to the conflict respect and adhere to their obligations under international law and these are not things that a party to the conflict can decide they choose to do it they want to do it or when it's convenient for them to do it they must meet these obligations and for those that do not they must be held to account we must remember that a child is a child and all children need to be protected and need and they need to protect the right to life and the right to receive assistance and this is every single child we are at a moment where it's important that we protect all children if we do not it is not only the lives of the 1.1 million children that are in gaza right now but also their hopes their dreams 
and their futures. If the global community cannot restore the global rules-based order, this is the framework of international humanitarian law and the Fourth Geneva Convention, frameworks that were established and developed after the horrors of war to stop the very violations that we're witnessing now. If the global community cannot or will not get a restoration or adherence again to this global rules-based order, it will not only be at the lives of the children in Gaza, but also we will effectively be robbing them of their futures and their hopes. And this is an entire generation of children. And we will be condemning all children in the region, in both the occupied territory and in Israel and surrounding countries, to be trapped in an endless cycle of violence. That was Jason Lee, the country director of Save the Children in the Occupied Palestinian Territory. We would like to thank Mr Lee for taking the time to send us his responses amid difficult circumstances. And our thoughts go out to his staff and the children in Gaza. Now, to hear more about the humanitarian efforts to assist the civilians in Gaza, we connect with Dr Natalie Thurtle, one of the medical coordinators of the international medical charity Doctors Without Borders, or MSF. She was based in East Jerusalem and the West Bank and coordinated MSF's emergency response in Gaza after the Israel-Hamas war broke out. She joins us on the line now. Dr Thurtle, hello and thank you for your time. Thank you. Could you first tell us about your role and what you were doing to deal with the crisis that developed in Gaza after the breakout of the war? What sort of situations were you dealing with? So my role was to support the team on the ground in Gaza who were dealing with extremely difficult, uh, very small humanitarian space um, with very multiple challenges. Um, And so my job was to help them navigate that and to support the risk management, to support the medical strategy, to analyse the data um, that they were able to produce um, and to move the whole thing forward um, from the medical perspective. Can you give us a picture of what the situation was like down there when you were there? So so I left a week ago and um, I know that it hasn't improved. In fact, it seems to get worse every day. Um, it's it's very difficult to, to put it into words. I think that um, I've been working with MSF since 2008 intermittently and I've worked in many different conflict zones and I really struggle to... Um, find words to describe what's happening in Gaza. Um, Our team on the ground are seeing massive civilian casualties every single day. Um, They're working in really dire conditions in terms of the lack of supplies that are able to get through, the lack of personnel that are available to work, the um, massive deficit in inpatient beds and um, hospital capacity to manage these huge influxes of wounded that are coming every day. Um, And almost 50% of the population of Gaza are under 18, and that is fully represented in the casualties, the deaths um, and the injuries. So they're seeing totally horrific things every day and working with very traumatised local staff um, as well. So it's very hard. And perhaps most importantly, it's extremely insecure. There's no safe place in Gaza. We've seen that um, with our teams um, who have come under fire on multiple occasions. We've had um, our assets and buildings um, targeted 
um, on a scale that that we've never really experienced before. So it, it's extremely challenging to remain present, um, and and even more challenging to provide any sort of quantity or quality of of healthcare. You say it's difficult to provide that. What do the people need there at the moment? What are the biggest areas of concern? So the first thing that needs to happen is there needs to be a permanent ceasefire. Um, nothing can really change in terms of meeting the demand um, until that happens. And the reason for that is that um, at the moment we can't work in, in the way that we would normally work in a safe place. We can't bring in the human resources we need. We can't bring in the medical supplies that we need. We can't move around in the way that we need to. Um, and we've had to leave several facilities where we were providing care because of insecurity. And then, um, and and we're losing staff members who are being killed um, in this conflict uh, very frequently. So we can't expand our activities in that context then every single day you've got hundreds and hundreds of additional injured people and and war trauma is extremely complex medically so you have multiple injuries on the same patient that will need multiple surgeries rehabilitation physio ot like all these kind of services which do not exist in in any meaningful way and cannot exist in a meaningful way until the ceasefire is in place it's a devastating and heartbreaking situation can you uh, tell us how the people are coping with the situation there in Gaza. Can you perhaps share with us any stories or experiences that highlight the hardships, the resilience the, the civilians there uh, are showing at the moment uh, that the MSF staff have, have seen? I think, I mean, our staff are extremely traumatised. They've, um, all of them had massive impacts, personal impacts from this conflict. Um, they've lost family members, they've lost um, their homes, they have lost uh, their clothing, the things that they need to, to function. They're living in tents, they can't find blankets, they can't find food easily. Um, they're at risk of communicable disease. Even the shelter that we're trying, we tried to uh, house our staff in we only have one toilet to to 100 people in that shelter and that's that's a good ratio right now in Gaza um, lots of people have have one to 500 something like that so the the squalor and and the um, you know uh, risk of big disease outbreaks is is a serious threat every day um, I our staff are incredible. I mean, they are extremely resilient, but this is really testing their capacity to to function um, and to show up because they can't, um, you know, deal with the trauma that they've been exposed to, but also just the basic needs of daily living can't be met and therefore there's we can't expect um, any consistency in in their ability to to work they can't move safely um they're not sure that their families are going to be safe so it's really hard um i was involved um in the um, convoy movement where our staff were attacked and uh one was killed and one was uh, injured and then died slowly over four days from an abdominal injury in our premises because we couldn't medically evacuate him to 
safe medical care because of the ongoing conflict outside of our premises. So that was um, extremely challenging for the staff that were with that patient. And when they did finally get evacuated to the south, they were sheltering somewhere where they had no access to mattresses, no access to blankets. And that's all of our staff. Like MSF is um, not able to... uh, even provide effectively for our staff because of the situation and the difficulties in getting um, items into Gaza, but also the massive, massive overcrowding now in the south because Gaza is already extremely densely populated and now you've got the whole population essentially sheltering in the south. So, yeah, it's it's been um, really hard for, for our local staff, absolutely. How have you managed to stay motivated, you and your staff, uh, amid these terrible, challenging uh, situation? How do you find the, the the energy to keep going? I mean, I can't speak for my staff, but I for our staff. But I think um, you know, from my side, that a lot of what motivates me is the staff and and the patients, and knowing that. Um, you know, being present and trying is is better than not being present and not trying. Um, but it's it is shameful. I mean, I think we all feel ashamed of what's happening there um, and the lack of action to prevent this um, and to stop this because it must be stopped and we can't stop it. We don't have the power to stop it. So we're just sort of there putting on band-aids and, and, and it, it's very dehumanizing for, for the patients, most importantly, and for the, the staff. Um, I think that our staff, local staff, like they feel obligated to show up for their fellows. Uh, people in Gaza and try to provide medical care and I think that gives them some reason sometimes to get up in the morning um, but for sure it's it's very challenging to do that right now. Well it's incredible to hear how far the staff are going to try and help the people in Gaza. What can others do to help MSF's efforts to assist civilians uh, in Gaza at the moment? What can our listeners do? I think it's really important that people read uh, information from those who are present on the ground that are impartial organisations like ourselves um, and to educate themselves um, about this context. Um, And then we are grateful for people who choose to write to their representatives to advocate um, uh, about uh, having a permanent ceasefire because that's the main message from our side. Um, nothing can really change or, or um, improve until until that happens. Um, and therefore, um, we are hopeful to pass that message to people who are, who are listening to what we're saying and who are wanting to do something sitting at home. Um, please identify your, your representative and, and contact them um, uh, and, and advocate for... Um, for a permanent ceasefire. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today and we wish you and all your staff uh, managed to stay safe. We've been speaking to Dr Natalie Thurtle from Doctors Without Borders. Thank you once again for your time. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 3.08 points, or 0.12%, on Tuesday to close at 2,602.59. 
The tech-heavy Kosdaq fell, however, slipping 6.28 points, or 0.73%, to close at 848.34. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 8.51 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,294.51. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online today. And for that, we have joining us in the studio, contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. Okay, what do you have for us first today? Christmas Eve is the day when Santa travels around the world to deliver presents to children. And thanks to some amazing technology, we were able to follow his flight path. (laughs) On Monday, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD in short, said that Santa left the North Pole at 6 p.m. on Sunday, passed through New Zealand and Australia, and arrived in the skies of Seoul at around 11.25 p.m. It was announced through their website, www. NORADSanta.org. NORAD is a combined organization of the U.S. and Canada that provides aerospace warning and protection for the two countries, and it has been tracking Santa Claus for 68 years. Yes, this is a fun tradition that many follow around the world each year, and Mm -hmm. I heard that Santa flew by some Iconic landmarks in Seoul as well, right? Yes. Which places did he visit? Santa riding a sleigh pulled by Rudolph, circled around Yeido's 63 building before heading to Seoul Tower and looked at the World Tower with jingle bells ringing. <laughs> he then went to Gyeongbokgung Palace, scattering gifts to children from the sky on Christmas Eve. Once he had delivered all the presents in Korea, he moved over to China, then Dubai, Greece, Berlin, Germany and Spain and flew in the skies of Georgia. You said the organization has been tracking Santa for 68 years. That's uh, pretty amazing. How did this tradition begin? NORAD's tracking began in 1955 when a child looking for Santa called a number misprinted in a newspaper ad. Uh, Colonel Harry, the commander on duty who received the child's call, assured the child that he was Santa in order not to shatter (laughs) their dreams. As the calls asking for Santa continued, staff at the organization took turns pretending to be Father Christmas. And since then, NORAD has been taking calls from all over the world and informing people of the slave's location online. The organization opens its, web- its website from 6 p.m. on December 24th every year and begins tracking Santa Claus's location using radar, sensors, and aircrafts from the moment he leaves the North Pole and broadcasts this information through the website. Yes, we should say that they were pretending to be Father Christmas because Father Christmas himself is too busy exactly. uh, at this time to right. be taking calls. Of yes. course, we should uh, clarify that for any children listening. Right. Yes, it sounds like it was another busy but successful Christmas for Santa. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to our second story of the day. What do you have for us? The number of cases of resellers asking for unreasonable prices in Korea has been on the rise, sparking controversy and concerns. To tell you about who resellers are, they're individuals who purchase goods to sell them for a higher price rather than use them themselves. These goods are often difficult to get, so people end up paying extortionate fees for them. This kind of practice in Korea has become a social issue. Yes, this is uh, the practice of scalping, essentially. We've talked about Mm. concert tickets in the past. But this time around, the controversy is regarding 
the sales of uh, items or vouchers for the Christmas period. Right. Resellers were found to be selling vouchers for famous hotels and reservations for luxury restaurants, which are in high demand for at this time of the year, as well as cakes with an expiration date. On a Korean secondhand trading platform, someone was selling a limited edition Christmas cake from a famous bakery in Daejeon for 100,000 won. The price was more than double the regular price of the cake, which was 43,000 won. That's a jump from 33 US dollars to 77 dollars. On another secondhand trading platform, dozens of posts offering accommodation and vacation spots in Gangwon province were found at a much higher price than the official reservation website. I understand that reselling such tickets or vouchers with a premium is actually banned in Korea, essentially if you do it in person, but there's no ban when it's done online, right? You're correct. According to Article 3 of the Minor Offenses Act, a fine of up to 600,001 is imposed on a seller who receives additional money at a place with a fixed fee, such as a movie theater, stadium, or a subway station. 600,001 is about $460. However, it cannot be applied to transactions that occur online rather than on-site. So unfortunately, it's pointed out that resale is repeated every peak season which only increases the number of cases of normal consumers paying unnecessarily high prices. Yes, this issue uh, is the issue is that these are highly desirable items, even mm. if it is just a cake, a fancy yeah. cake. So as long as there are people willing to pay the premium, unscrupulous people will try to take advantage mm. of that. It is an unfortunate situation, as you said, and it's something perhaps that authorities and businesses themselves uh, will have to try and deal with. Right. Okay, let's look into our third story of the day as well now. What else has been trending? South Korean pop era tenor Im Hyung-ju has been appointed as a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts in Britain. According to Im's agency, DGN Come on Tuesday, the 37-year-old was selected in recognition of his long-term term social service and charity work through art and his dedication to nurturing younger generations as a professor. Yes, this is a prestigious organization. It's quite the honor to become a fellow. Can you tell us more about the RSA for those who might not be familiar with it? Sure. The Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce was established in 1754 in London, England. The organization's aim is to find solutions to economic, social and environmental challenges so that the world can have a more resilient, rebalanced and regenerative future. Over the past couple of hundred of years, it has stuck to its goals of emboldening enterprise, enlarging science, refining art, and extending their commerce. And becoming a fellow is not easy, right? Right. Members are selected through a screening process, and only those who have achieved outstanding international achievements in the field of manufacturing, commerce, and the humanities and arts are chosen. Im joins the likes of English novelist Charles Dickens, founding father of the U.S., Benjamin Franklin, Marie Curie, Stephen Hawking, and Karl Marx, and more. That is quite the list of names, and uh, Im is now among them. So he must be thrilled to be receiving this title then. How did he respond to the Art Academy's decision? The popular tenor said he was honoured to receive the title. He said that it was especially meaningful as this year marks the 140th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic ties between Korea and Britain. Then he went on to say that he'll do his best to study and work harder, not only as a liaison for a better relationship between London and Seoul, but also as a scholar. With Im's appointment as a fellow of the society, he can add the title FRSA, short for Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, to his name. 
Well, congratulations to him. Mm. That's where we're going to leave it for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Hi, I'm Casey Kelly, pitcher for the LG Twins. You're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come now to Morning Edition Preview, our closing segment, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. OK, so what articles have you brought for us today? Well, Christmas is over and we are only several days away from the next big holiday, New Year's Day. To celebrate the end of the year and to welcome 2024, there will be a variety of concerts taking place over the next few weeks. And all the details can be found in Hwan Dong-hee's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald. OK, so concerts, they... Sound like a great way to usher in the new year. Right. Can you walk us through then a couple of these concerts? Sure. So the first concert will be held from Wednesday to Friday at the National Gugak Centre. It's called Nare. So this is a type of ritual performance that would take place in palaces. And apparently it dates all the way back to the Goryeo era. So between the years 918 and 1392. The performances were said to help ward off evil spirits so that people are able to welcome a peaceful new year. For the upcoming concerts, around 120 performers will take the stage. Wow. Yeah, they include the National Gugak Centre's Court Music Orchestra, the Folk Music Group and Dance Theatre. It sounds like a grand production and a great way to learn more about Korea's traditional rituals and uh, uh, culture. Yes, indeed it does. And it sounds like a great way to end the year as well. Mm. What about concerts welcoming the new year? Can you give us any information about them? Well, next year will be the Year of the Dragon. So the one that caught my eye was Dragon Leaping Up, which will be held at the National Jungdong Theatre in Seoul on January 12th. And what I like about this concert is that there are a variety of acts taking the stage. So there will be something for everyone. Mm. So the songs span many genres, such as musicals, pop music, traditional music and classical music. There will also be media, art and dances to help elevate the performances to the next level. It seems like this concert is the theatre's 2023 wrap-up. That's because all the songs and performances have been performed at the theatre this year. I see. So uh, those were a couple of the concerts that were mentioned in tomorrow's Korea Heralds. But there are more, right? Right. There are a total of four concerts in the article. So if any of our listeners in Korea are interested in trying something new in the next couple of weeks, then check out the article. Sounds great. Let's uh, move on to the next article. What do you have for us? So the Cultural Heritage Administration announced on Tuesday that it has designated six artefacts as national treasures. And Park Council's article in the national section of the Korea Times has information about one of the artefacts. It's an 800-year-old Buddhist bronze bell that is located in Neso Temple in Buan, North Jola province. And it has a pretty interesting history. Okay, so tell us more about this interesting history then. So according to the article, it was produced in 1222, and it is the largest among the surviving bronze bells from the Goryeo era. It's 103 centimetres tall and weighs around 420 kilograms, so quite a heavy bell. <laughs> Apparently it was originally enshrined at the Chungnim Temple in South Chungcheong province, but that is not around anymore. The bell was moved to its current home in 1850. It was actually initially designated as a treasure in 1963, and now, six day- decades later, it has uh, had its cultural heritage status elevated. 
Right, so did the administration explain why it has chosen this bell to become a national treasure now? Yeah, so along with the announcement, the CHA released a statement explaining that the relic is a crucial resource for research in the history and production techniques of Korean Buddhist bells. It also added that uh, the information about its location, as well as the craftsmen who created it, adds academic value. You can see a picture of the bell in tomorrow's article, and you can also find out more about the other artefacts that were designated as national treasures. Yes, and that's in tomorrow's Korea Times. Yes. That's where we're going to leave it for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Before we wrap up, we'd like to remind our shortwave listeners in South America of some unfortunate changes. Uh, KBS World Radio's English service on the frequency 9.580 megahertz targeting South America will be coming to an end from January 1st. Instead, we'll be airing the same programming on 9.570 megahertz. For more details, please go to the PR room on our website, world.kbs.co.kr. We appreciate your understanding. And that is we close out our show today. Join us again tomorrow for more news, reviews and reviews from Korea. Till then, I've been your host, Won Jang-ho, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of a cold snap. Ensure to keep your home warm, especially if you have children, elderly family members or patients living with you. Those who have high blood pressure or weak heart conditions must warm up exposed parts of their bodies, especially their heads. If you experience extreme chills, fatigue, slurred speech, loss of memory or sense of direction, visit a hospital immediately as these are symptoms of hypothermia. If you experience numbness or paleness in your hands, feet, ears, nose or any tip of your body, this could be frostbite. Take a warm shower. If the symptoms persist, go to the hospital. If you plan on exercising, make sure you stretch sufficiently to avoid injuring your joints. If you plan on leaving your house empty for a long time, leave your taps running slightly to prevent the pipes from freezing. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures. KBS World Radio.